0: Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. We have been studying through the book of Revelation, and we are almost to the end here. Revelation chapter 20, we will be diving into just a few verses here in Revelation. And many of you have said that this has been one of the best series through Revelation that you've ever heard. Some of you have said you've never heard a Revelation series before, but we're diving in and we're seeing things that you've never seen before. We're going to slow down and spend some time on Revelation 20 to make sure that we're seeing things here that I think that the Lord desires for us to see and many of you have said that this has been so encouraging to your soul and I praise the Lord for that as we've been going through. But some of you have said, "How are you going to keep preaching through the remainder of this book because it's all future events. It's all things that for us, if the Lord tarries, we will already be dead and we will be resurrected and we will be glorified. And so there's really nothing for us to learn here that we can take and apply then. It's only for now. So many of you have said, what's the point? Some of you have said, what's the point of these remaining chapters? If we know the end, we know what's going to happen. And to that, I would just, I would say, uh, I want to quote Uh, The good doctor in in theology, we call him the good doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a doctor, medical doctor, and then he became a a theologian and a pastor and a preacher. And he says these words, and I think that they are uh, fitting for us as we dive back into Revelation chapter 20 to examine ourselves and to think through what is it that we are expecting to happen in these moments. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, We must examine ourselves Do we go to God's house expecting something to happen, or do we just go to listen to a sermon, or to sing our hymns, or to meet with one another? How often does this vital idea enter into our minds, that we are in the presence of the living God, that the Holy Spirit is here in his church, that we may feel the touch of his power How much do we think in terms of coming together to meet with God and to worship Him and to stand before Him and to listen to Him? Is there not this appalling danger that we're just content because we have correct beliefs that we've lost the life, the vital thing, the power, the real thing that really makes worship worship, which is to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so as we dive into the middle section here in Revelation chapter 20, I want to ask you the same question. What is it that you're expecting? Are you expecting to learn more truths? I hope that you will. Are you expecting to meet with God himself? Are you expecting to hear from him as we open these verses, these pages together? Are you expecting to hear from him in such a way that you see yourself and that you change? That you see Christ and that you see a a picture of him so glorious that all other loves would fade away and he would be your one supreme obsession. Let's read these verses together with that in mind, and we will ask God's blessing on our time as we dive into an incredible passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 10. John writes, When the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Father, we have been studying through this book, and every single sermon brings us the realities of your glory, the realities of our sinfulness, the realities of judgment, and the realities of the beauty of heaven. And this Sunday is no different. We will see here in these verses the beauty of Christ. Just as we sang, he is a wonderful, merciful Savior. He is our precious Redeemer, and he has called us his friends. Father, I pray that as we dive into these verses, we would be blown away by your majesty. We'd be blown away by the hope that we have in Christ. We'd be blown away by the hopelessness that we have in ourselves and only in us. God, I pray that you would silence that inner lawyer that's going to pop up in this sermon to say, yes, you have sinned, but you're not that bad. And I pray that we would all run to the cross where we have forgiveness, we have reconciliation, we have peace, we have the removal of guilt, shame, every single sin, past, present, and future. We'd run to the empty tomb where we know we have the power of the same resurrection power that Christ had, that we have it residing in us to conquer sin. Teach us now, Father. Holy Spirit, we pray every Lord's day. Open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. Do that this day for our good and for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. These verses present two specific questions that I want to tackle together. Two questions. Question number one, this final revolt, Satan is going to be released, he's going to get a revolt, and he's going to try and overthrow Jesus. This final revolt, question number one, how does this even happen? How does this revolt even happen? Question number two, what's the point of it? What what are we supposed to get out of this revolt? Why does it happen for us to see here? Why doesn't God just destroy Satan once for all before the millennial kingdom? Why does he let him survive in the abyss for a thousand years and then let him return? So question number one, how does this revolt happen? You remember from last week, We saw the character of Jesus' reign on earth, this millennial kingdom. It's described in so many places. Abundant ink is spilled on it in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11, chapter 30, chapter 35 tells us that the curse is being reversed in this millennial kingdom. Animals that are normally enemies are playing together. Lions will eat straw, no longer eating meat. Children are going to play with snakes and cobras and enjoy this crazy world for a thousand years where the curse is being reversed. Joel chapter 2 tells us there's going to be plenty of food for everyone. There's going to be religious festivals, Zechariah 14 verse 16. There's a temple, Ezekiel chapter 40 verse, or chapter forty through chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says that Jesus himself will judge the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They're going to hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears will turn into pruning hooks. No more fighting. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and they will never again learn They're going to be at peace for this thousand years. Psalm chapter 2 says that Jesus will judge with a rod of iron over all of the nations. He will keep them at peace. He will judge from and rule from Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 17 says that Jerusalem is the throne of Jesus in the Millennial Kingdom. Psalm chapter 72 tells us that in the Millennial Kingdom, the entire earth is filled with the glory of God. Everyone will see, know, believe, will enjoy Ezekiel chapter 20, though, gives us a strange turn. And it's the turn that we find here in Revelation 20 as well. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 34 through 38, tells us that God, through Christ, will purge the rebels that are in the kingdom. So people will begin rebelling. There will be rebels in the kingdom that will rebel against Jesus as king on the earth. So my question is, where do they come from? We read it earlier. We read it at the beginning of our service that Satan, once he's released, he will deceive the nations and gather for himself an army against Jesus, King Jesus, who is ruling and reigning on the throne in the millennial kingdom. So question number one, where do these people come from? How does this revolt happen? Where do these people come from? Uh, Something that would be helpful to give an understanding of where these individuals, these people that rebel against Jesus come from, is if we go back, let's rewind a little bit as we look at eschatology, as we look at the end times, when the rapture happens, when the rapture happens, the very next millisecond, there will be no believers on the earth, correct? When the rapture happens, all the believers on the earth are taken to heaven, and there will be no believers on the earth for you know, a second after the rapture. But we do know that throughout the remainder of that great tribulation period, people will get saved, right? We've seen that. People will get saved. So believers will start again populating the world. They will start again being killed by the Antichrist, but there will be believers after the rapture happens. The exact same thing is true about the Millennial Kingdom. If you kind of go to the Millennial Kingdom, after the Battle of Armageddon, and at the inauguration of the Millennial Kingdom, that first millisecond once the Millennial Kingdom begins, the Bible has taught us that there will be no non-believers. All the non-believers have been removed and only peace with Israel, no enemies, no non-believers, a millisecond into the Millennial Kingdom. But, though it's ruled and reigned by Christ himself, non-believers will spring up in the Millennial Kingdom. So, rapture, rapture, Believers are gone, no believers right after, and then believers will, uh, people will start getting saved after the rapture. Same thing, but in reverse for the Battle of Armageddon into the Millennial Kingdom. Millennial Kingdom begins, the inauguration of the Millennial Kingdom, no non believers, and yet non believers will begin to grow in the kingdom. How? The answer is in the Millennial Kingdom, you will have all of those glorified Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, you and I will be there, but you will also have. Humans who did not die during the tribulation period, who entered into the millennial kingdom as non-glorified human beings, just like you and me. We know at least 144,000 will because God preserved them in Revelation chapter 7 to keep them alive so that nothing will be able to harm them throughout this tribulation period. So at least 144,000 people will make it through. We also were told in Revelation chapter 12 that a lot of humans will be hidden into these rocks, into these crevices in the Middle East to be protected. And so as the Millennial Kingdom continues, you have it populated with glorified saints with this beautiful rule and reign of Christ, but you also have humans that are not glorified that have entered into the Millennial Kingdom. And those humans get to experience this amazing reversal of the curse, such that as Isaiah 29 verse 18 says, there's massive healing on a, on a nation global scale. Isaiah chapter 30 talks about a high birth rate happening, lots of people having lots of kids. Isaiah chapter 65 says that uh, death is so infrequent and you die at such an old age that to die at a, uh, the age of 100, you will be thought of as being accursed, so 100 is going to be thought of. If you die at the age of 100, it'll be like you dying at the age of one or two in this life. It's going to be a, a period of massive growth population. Just think about, you know I don't do math very well. It's not, I'm not good at that. But just think, if we have 144,000 people enter into the millennial kingdom, we're told that those are men. Let's say there's just one woman for each man and they enter and so we have, you know, Rounding up 300,000 people, we have 150,000 couples, and they all have babies. And the babies just start populating the world. Let's think of how exponential this growth will be. Let me give you uh, some historical narrative of what this looked like with just Adam and Eve. Adam had Seth, you remember after Cain and Abel, he had Seth when he was 130 years old. And the millennial kingdom will be very similar to the pre-flood a period in the Garden of Eden, where you're going to have uh, children at very old ages. So 130 years old, Genesis 5 tells us that they had more kids even after Seth, and Adam lived to 930 years old, so he lived almost about the time that this millennial kingdom will be. There are, between Adam to Noah, there are 1,656 years between Adam and Noah, so the millennial kingdom is 1,000 years, so tack on a couple hundred years after that. But let's just use that as an example. If the gro- growth rate in the pre-flood world was equal to the growth rate in the year 2000 for us, there would, be, there would have been, conservatively, estimates would have been 750 million people at the time of the flood. Using an extremely conservative population increase of about 1.5% per year, for those 1,656 years, there would have been 774 million people alive at the time of the flood. That's conservative. Upper estimates go to 4 billion. So we got millions, if not billions, of people on the earth right before the flood happens. And that was with one man and one woman for 1,600 years exponentially populating the world. Imagine if we start with 150,000 couples for 1,000 years. So decrease the time. We don't have 1,600 years. We have 1,000. But increase the beginning number of people. The world is going to be so filled with a glorious kingdom population. What an amazing kingdom. Now, there are questions that we have about this kingdom. Some difficulties, for sure, because there isn't complete revelation about all of the questions that we would have. I have two big questions. Question number one, how do glorified people and non-glorified people live together? That's a question. It's a question that a lot of people raise. They say this couldn't potentially happen because you can't have glorified people and non-glorified people living together in the same kingdom. I don't know how it works. I just know that it has worked in the past, right? You remember Jesus, he was glorified. He rose from the dead with a glorified body that could walk through walls, that could ascend into heaven. He could breathe oxygen without breathing oxygen as he goes through the atmosphere into heaven. So Jesus has a glorified body hanging out with non-glorified people and no one writes any ink about it, right? Nobody's like, look at this amazing body. No, they say he looks like a gardener. So clearly there's some way that you can hang out with glorified people if you're a non-glorified person and it's totally fine. Here's another question. This is one that I've wrestled with for a long time. What happens if, as a non-glorified human, you make it through the tribulation, you make it into the millennial kingdom, and you're a a human, and you're at the end of your life, and the, the curse starts being reversed, but let's say you die in the millennial kingdom as a believer, what happens to you? In my mind, everything always goes back to Star Wars. I just picture Yoda falling asleep in The Return of the Jedi, and then he becomes the blue guy, right? Like, I don't know if that's what happens to us when we die in the millennial kingdoms. Some people would say you can't die in the millennial kingdom. I don't think that that's true based off of some of the verses that we talked about, but what happens? Let's say Donovan makes it through the tribulation into the millennial kingdom and he dies. Is it like, hey, we'll see you in just a second, and he closes his eyes and then instantly glorified? Does he have to get, resurrected up into heaven, glorified body, and then sent back down. Heaven's like, nobody's there, just angels going, hey, get back, go back down. Like, I don't know what happens. I don't know. There's a lot of questions. But the major facts about the millennial kingdom are so sufficiently clear, and they're so sufficiently glorious that we can take all those questions and say, we don't know, and we're going to enjoy it and experience it when we get there but we know what this kingdom is going to be like. The things that we need to know, God's revealed to us. So, how does this revolt happen? You have non-glorified humans entering into the millennial kingdom, having children, and they have a sin nature. They're just like you and me. They're born with a sin nature. And over a thousand years, enough of those people, those children born with a sin nature, grow up to say, I don't want to follow Jesus. And Satan after being bound for a 1,000 years, is released, and he wastes no time in getting back to what he does best. Somehow, through the end of this 1,000-year period of time, the devil is going to be deceptive enough to convince people who have been living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ himself that they should revolt against him. How is the devil going to do this? Again, we're not told. We're just told that he is deceptive and he goes out to deceive the nations. How does he do it? Here's some speculative ways. These are kind of my own sanctified imagination. Maybe he's going around telling people, I escaped from the abyss. God thought he was as strong as he claims to be, and he could hold me, but I escaped. It took me a while, a thousand years, but I got out. You should follow me. If I can get out of God's prison, I can kill God, and you can be a part of my kingdom. Maybe he said that he overpowered Michael, and he's a Stronger angel than Michael. Maybe he's saying that his release from the abyss over those thousand years means that he was actually innocent. Look, God let me go. He put me in there for a, a crime I didn't commit, and he's let me go. Let's go against this unjust king. Whatever it is, he deceives the nations and he prepares with these non believers at the end of the millennial kingdom to wage war against Jesus. John Phillips write in his, writes in his commentary on Revelation, men have not known the arts of war for a thousand years, but now the master craftsman is back, and it will not take them long to learn. By the way, God is sovereign over all this. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 16 says, he not only knows that th- this is happening, but he opens up a path for this to happen, for the people to come fight against him. In fact, in verse 7, it says, when the thousand years are completed, my Bible says completed. Some of your Bibles might say finished. Uh, it's the same word as fulfilled. There was a, a prophetic time period, and that prophetic time period has come to the end. God knows exactly the date when this thousand year is over, and he is letting Satan be released. It's the same word that's used in 20, chapter 20, verse 3, and chapter 20, verse 5, to speak of the fulfillment of God's promises. I just want to remind us, that God is sovereign over all of this. Satan being released from the abyss is not surprising to God. It doesn't take God by surprise or by shock. John Piper says it this way. What I've seen over 18 years of pastoral ministry and six years of teaching experience before that is that people who waver with uncertainty over the problem of God's sovereignty in the matter of evil usually do not have a God-entranced worldview. For them... Now God is sovereign, but now he's not. Now he's in control, and now he's not. Now he's good and reliable when things are going well, and when they go bad, maybe he's not. Now he's the supreme authority of the universe, and now he's in the dock with human prosecutors, peppering him with demands that he, can give an, that he should give an account of himself. But when a person settles it biblically, intellectually, and emotionally, that God has ultimate control of all things, including evil and that this is gracious and precious beyond words, then a marvelous stability and depth comes into that person's life, and they develop a God-entranced worldview. When a person believes and cherishes that truth, they have the key to a God-entranced worldview. I wonder for you, as we've studied the book of Revelation, and we've seen massive amounts of evil, I wonder if you have let God off the hook and said, he doesn't know, he's not in control, he's surprised, he's figuring out just like we are. Or if you said, his hands aren't dirty, he has not committed evil, he can't tempt anyone or be tempted by anyone, he can't sin. But he absolutely knows, allows, ordains, plans, purposes, everything that happens for his greatest glory and for your greatest good as a believer. Well, the devil is released Verse 8, he comes out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. we got millions and millions, billions and billions maybe of people. Four corners of the earth, you know that's the four points of the compass, the entirety of the earth. Gog and Magog is a similar phrase that's used here to speak of the entirety of the earth. Gog and Magog, Magog is Noah's grandson, the son of Japheth, he went north after the flood, founded a great kingdom north of the Black and Caspian Sea. In ancient times, it was known as Scythia. In modern days, it's the modern-day Stan nations and on into uh, the southern part of Russia. Gog and Magog, we first saw it together as a combination in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, where Ezekiel is prophesying... That at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, these stand nations will come together and fight against Jesus. And that's the battle of Armageddon. Here, in Revelation, I don't think that this is referring to that Ezekiel 38 passage, because Ezekiel 38 uh, clearly is talking about the, the war of Armageddon, the battle that happens before the millennial kingdom, because Ezekiel 40 to 48 deals with that millennial temple. So 38 is the battle, 39 is the cleanup, 40 is the millennial temple in the millennial kingdom. So I think that this is probably speaking It's speaking after the um, millennial kingdom is over. It's speaking in a different time period than Ezekiel 38. And it's really saying, since nations and countries will have been reshaped and reformed from what we know them to be today, I think that Gog and Magog, in the context of the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, I think it's a reference to just the remotest parts of the world at this point. It would be like us saying... You know, that's often Timbuktu. Timbuktu is a real place somewhere in the world. I don't know where it is. It's a real place. But when I say, yeah, yeah, that's often Timbuktu, that's a reference to it's far away, right? I think that's what John is saying here when he says, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to the remotest places, the devil is grabbing people whose hearts with sin residing in them desire to revolt against Jesus. And so what does he do? He gathers them together. And they come up to the broad plain of the earth. This is probably the ghetto in the north coming down to Jerusalem. And they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So two different things that they're surrounding. Beloved city, that's Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is residing. And he is king and he's ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom. The camp, that word is uh, sometimes translated in the Bible as fortress. Or uh, some of your translations might say citadel, older translations say citadel. This is a camp not of like, you know, a tent where you're having um, s'mores on a campfire. This is an encampment of military people, a presence of military soldiers. So as we have the devil being released, and he's going out into the world, and there's chatter in the world against Jesus, there are people in Jerusalem saying, we can try to learn to fight again. We can get an army going. We can fight against them. That's what this camp is. So we have people all around the world that love Jesus. We have people that live in Jerusalem with Jesus. And we have people in Jerusalem that say, can I sign me up to be a part of an army that will defend you? And Jesus says, I don't think I'm going to need your help. Because fire is going to come down from heaven. God the Father devours Every single individual who is fighting against Jesus. God protects Jerusalem as her enemies encircle her to kill her. John Phillips again writes, "'The judgment is swift and sure.'" the invading armies, blinded by Satan, are driven forward in the grand delusion that perhaps they can take possession of the tree of life and live in Jerusalem apart from Christ. There is not a word about conflict. Not a shot is fired. Not a saint is harmed. With a flash, the fire of God falls, and it's all over. Nothing remains but a heap of ashes. No carry-on birds are summoned to bury these dead. They are cremated in the fires that slay them. In an instant, They are shivering on the other shore in sight of the great white throne. Satan also, verse 10, is destroyed. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever Satan is tormented in the lake of fire. He doesn't own it. He's not the hotel manager of the lake of fire. He is the chief captive in the lake of fire. So, why does or how does this result this revolt happen? How does the revolt happen? You have non-glorified humans entering from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. They repopulate the world with children who have a sin nature just like us. And those children who have a sin nature, many of them decide to turn against Jesus and try to fight against him to take his throne, to take over his world, to rule and reign in his stead. And God the Father says, enough is enough, sends fire down from heaven, devours all non-believers, and then sends Satan into the lake of fire. That's how this revolt happens. Next question, final question for this morning. Why does it happen? What does it teach us? Why is it here? Why allow Satan to return at all? But we're not told explicitly. But I think that we can draw out just three specific principles. There's many reasons why I think God allows this to happen, but just three principles for us this morning as to why this revolt is allowed. Why does it happen and what is it teaching us today? Number one: this revolt teaches us the nature of eternal punishment. This revolt teaches us the nature of eternal eternal punishment. Verses 7 through 10 teach us the nature of eternal punishment. Satan is in the abyss for a thousand years, and his depravity cannot be cured. A thousand years in the abyss does not reform him. Satan comes out still not believing in the word of God, still trying to win even though he knows he will not. He's not reformed. This judgment that he goes through is not a judgment of purification. It's not purgative. It's not purging you of sin. It's punitive. It's punishment. You might say, and rightfully so, yeah, but you're talking about the devil. The devil's an angel. He's a fallen angel. And angels were not given a second chance. They weren't given grace. They don't have the allowance to repent. And you'd be right. Absolutely. He is unable to repent. But we also see in verse 10, the beast and the false prophet, and they're not angels. The beast is the Antichrist. The false prophet is that human ruler who works with the Antichrist as the religious leader in the world during the end times. They are two humans, and they were cast into the lake of fire at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ. At the end of chapter 19, they were thrown alive into the lake of fire. And now here in chapter 20, they are still there after a thousand years of punishment. They're humans, not angels. They have the ability to repent, but they are choosing not to because hell and the lake of fire are not purgative. They're punishment. Also in the text, in verse 3, or verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they, it's a third person plural, all three of them all three of them will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Humans and the angel, the fallen angel, Satan himself. So these verses teach us the nature of eternal punishment. Punishment lasts forever and ever. It does not end. It doesn't refine you and purify you and make you holy. It does not make you uh, to a place where you want to repent and trust in Jesus. And it happens forever and ever. The very end of verse 10, day and night, forever and ever. Literally in the Greek, it's to the ages of ages. Some people say, well, forever and ever is an idiom that just means a very long time, and then you are destroyed. You're annihilated. Uh, you, you are punished in hell for a very long time, and then after your punishment is done, you've served your crime, you, you've served your time, you, you, are, you are completely annihilated. You're just, you cease to exist. That's not possible, though, because the same phrase is used to speak of the length of time of heaven, of paradise. Chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 21, verse 25, and chapter 22, verse 5. Heaven is referred to, the paradise that we get to experience as believers is referred to as a place that lasts forever and ever, to the ages of ages. So if the ages of ages is just an idiom that describes hell being a place where you exist for a while, you're punished, and then you cease to exist, then we equally have to say heaven's going to be a place where you exist for a while, you enjoy bliss, but then you cease to exist. So number one, that contradicts the teaching of Scripture. Number two, I just genuinely hope that that's not the case because I want to exist with Jesus forever and ever. And praise the Lord, the Bible says that we will. So these verses teach us the nature of eternal punishment. If the devil were punished with the false prophet and the beast at the end of chapter 19, thrown in the lake of fire with them, and we have no thousand-year reign of Christ, then we would not see the devil being released and then punished after the thousand years are over in the exact same place where the false prophet and the antichrist are also. They still exist. So for a thousand years, they were in the lake of fire, and they're still there when the devil's thrown there. Number two, this text teaches us that God is justified in his righteous judgment. We come to the end of this text and we think, man, that just seems like an unjust punishment to send them to hell forever and ever. That does not seem just. But I believe that these verses teach us that God is absolutely justified in his righteous judgment of sinners. And here's the reason why. When the revolt happens... No one that chooses to fight against Jesus can say, The devil made me do it. Because the devil was gone for a thousand years. The devil was gone for a thousand years. He had no ability to tempt, deceive, or coerce anyone to follow him against Jesus. When Satan is released, all he's doing is helping to lead people to where they already want to go. They want this. A helpful illustration would be Judas. The devil indwells Judas and takes Judas over to the religious leaders to betray Jesus. But it's not like Judas is standing there with Jesus saying, I love you, Jesus. I believe in you. I want to follow you. I want to repent of my sins. I love you. And then all of a sudden, like his eyes turn back in his head, and he has like this glow about him and he goes, I want to betray you. And he just like robotically starts walking away. That's not what happens when Satan indwells him. Judas already hated Jesus, and Satan goes, I can use you. That's what he's doing here. We already have a world filled at the end of the millennial kingdom with people who hate Jesus' rule. And so Satan goes, I can use this. I can use this. Why would anyone not enjoy this king? This is staggering. Do you realize Jesus is king He's ruling and reigning physically from Jerusalem. You can go see him. You can go ask about his political policies. You can go talk to him. And yet, even though he's ruling and reigning for a thousand years, there are people who will still say, "Eh, I don't like this guy. Why? Why would anyone turn against Jesus? It's because of Romans 8, verse 7. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not love God. God. It's about what you love. This is so informative for us. If everything in the millennial kingdom that happens, namely peace, the reversal of the curse, Christ ruling and reigning, morality in the government, if everything that's happening is still going to be rebelled against, that should adjust our expectations and what we hope in. I think we should vote correctly. I think we should try our best To work, We've talked about this before, even with our post-millennial brothers and sisters. I love that they want to fight as hard as they can to win the culture, to gospelize the world, and to usher in the kingdom. I love that they want to do that. And we should want to do that as well. But we should understand and be informed biblically that when Jesus is king, not over America, he's not president over America, he's king over the entire world, people still fight against him. So you put the best president that you can put in office over the United States, making the best policies that they could possibly make, and our hope is not in them. Because if Jesus were in their shoes, ruling and reigning from the White House, people would still rebel against him. Doesn't mean that we just give up, the world is just going bad, and we just give up. No, we fight, but we never place our hope in political change to bring about morality. You can't legislate heart change. You can't. Only the gospel does that. One pastor says it this way, you can take Satan out of the system and you still have depravity. You can put the man with depravity in a perfect environment and he's still going to love sin because it's his nature, that's what depravity is. It's not that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be, but it's that everyone loves sin in the essence of who they are. Sin blinds sinners in every age. You can work all you want to make cultural morality in this country. It's not going to redeem anyone. It's not gonna change sinners. They love their sin. In fact, those, those changes will just make sinners mad. So, if people reject Christ, it will not be because they're deceived by the devil. It's simply because they love their iniquity. So, of course, God is just in his punishment of them because they are not being led astray by the devil. They themselves hate God. Number three, not only does this teach us the nature of eternal punishment, it also teaches us that God is justified in his righteous judgments. And finally, number three, it teaches us that mankind's biggest problem is in their heart. It's our heart's mankind's biggest problem is the heart. Is man the way that he is because he was born that way or because his environment made him that way? This is a question of all ages. The reality is we were born with a sin nature. We simply love sin, and we've seen it all throughout the book of Revelation. So these verses end the theory, the false theory that man under perfect conditions and a perfect environment will willingly serve the God who created and redeemed them. William Host in his commentary says, "'The golden age of the kingdom will last a thousand years "'during which righteousness will reign "'and peace, prosperity, and the knowledge of God "'will be universally enjoyed. "'But this will not entail universal conversion, "'and all profession must be tested. "'Will not a thousand years under the beneficiary sway of Christ "'and the manifested glory of God "'suffice to render men immune to Satan's temptations?' Will they not have radically changed for the better and become, by the altered conditions of life and the absence of Satan and his temptations, children of God and lovers of his will? Alas, it will be proved once more that man, whatever his advantages and environment, apart from the grace of God and the new birth, remains at heart only evil and at enmity with God. That's what these verses teach us. You take out the devil. You create an environment where Jesus rules and reigns as king and the curse is being reversed. And sin is still strong enough to say, I don't want that. So what do we do with these verses? I want to give you just two points in conclusion, in application. So what? We've been taught something. We see, number one, how the revolt happens. We see, number two, why it happens. What is is it teaching us? We see that it teaches us about the nature of eternal punishment. It teaches us that God's just in his punishment. And we see that uh, we have a problem and it's in our hearts. So what do we do with that? Two points, very simple. Number one, you need to know, believe at the core of your being that sin is stronger than you think it is. Sin is stronger than you think it is. These verses should guard us from sin's deception. People rebel against Jesus when he's king, not making a bad decision in the entire thousand years of reigning. And again, this isn't anything new to us. Go back to the beginning of the Bible Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden, and they rebel. Pharaoh, think about everything that he witnessed. He saw the power of God on display and he says, I hate him and I don't want to submit to him. Think of Judas. He lived with Jesus for three and a half years and he rebels. Sin is stronger than you think. Sin has never made anyone better off, ever. Sin distorts and degrades your soul. It's deceptive and it lies. It makes you live in darkness. And if people love their sin when Jesus is king on the earth, then you and I can absolutely be allured by sin today. We're not as strong as we think we are. So I want to ask you, where have you allowed sin to creep into your heart, take root, and start growing because you do not think sin is as strong as it actually is? What is the essence of sin? You have to go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. You remember what the devil says to Eve, that fruit... The devil's temptation is not offering Eve a better menu than what she has. The devil's temptation is saying, if you eat that fruit, you can become like God, greater than God, and you don't need God. He's tempting her with autonomy and self-sufficiency. You remember the fruit? was desirous to make one wise. It looked good. She wanted to taste it. And then it says, it was desirous to make one wise. She wanted to eat of this fruit because she desired to be made wise. Think of how absolutely stunning that sentence is. She's walking with the God of the universe, the God of all wisdom. She has all wisdom right at her disposal. She doesn't need a a piece of fruit to give that to her. Why isn't God's wisdom enough for her? It was because she wanted wisdom that was autonomous. I don't want to be dependent on God. I don't want to need God. I want to be able to be autonomous in my own wisdom. I don't need to be allied with God. I don't want to have to require my allegiance to God and submit to God. I don't want to do that. God is the ultimate source of wisdom, and Eve wants that position. She wants to be God. Sin, at its essence, is self-autonomy. I want to be able to rule my own life. And utter selfishness. I want to be able to make my own rules. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15 says. Christ died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves. If you live in sin, you're just living for yourself. Sin is selfishness. When love of self replaces love for God, As we see around us in the world, there is literally no end to the evil that will result. When sin is a category that the culture leaves behind, we don't have a category for sin, there's no sin, when they throw it out, then you have to explain all the human tragedies that are happening around you in a different way. Paul Tripp says it this way, if you do not believe in the tragedy and universality of sin, then you will think that humans have the power to fix humans. So you put your hope in education, politics, philosophy, psychology, medicine, and so on. All these things are beneficial, but they have no power whatsoever to rescue us from the darkness, deceit, destruction, and death that sin rained down on all of us. If, however, you believe that the deepest problem for every human being is sin, and you believe that no human being is able to escape it, then you know that together we cannot save ourselves. If there is such a thing as sin, living in the heart of everyone, then our only hope is divine intervention. Sin is stronger than we think. And we are absolutely powerless to change it. So Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change the spots? If they can, then you also can do good. Those of you who are accustomed to doing evil. They can't change the skin color or the spots on their skin. They can't change it then you can't change your heart. We are absolutely hopeless. This is where the biblical message, the biblical truth and reality of sin leads us. We have no power whatsoever to manage, control, minimize, or escape our sin. Because sin is not just what we occasionally do. It's fundamentally who we are. Sin is stronger than we think it is. However, If you hear all of this and you go, wow, that's awful news, and we have absolutely no hope, brothers and sisters, that's exactly where you need to be. When it comes to the condition of sin, hopelessness about it is the only doorway to hope. So if you're hopeless right now and you go, I know my sin, I see my sin, and I have absolutely no hope of changing it, Now you're in a place where you can have hope. That leads to point number two. Sin is stronger than we think it is. But Jesus is stronger than you think he is. You have a savior who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Even in your sinfulness, in spite of your sinfulness, even in the midst of your sinfulness, you have a savior who says, I love you and I will make a way for that sin to be removed and to give you power to keep fighting. Not perfectly, but to fight. Jesus is stronger than you think he is. Paul Tripp again says this, if we're ever going to see and celebrate the rescuing, forgiving, transforming, and delivering grace of God the Father through Jesus' Son, we need to abandon any hope in our own ability to defeat sin. We may briefly harness a particular behavior, but we have no power to cleanse ourselves of the iniquity that is part of our nature. We are not those who occasionally do sin, but who have the power of self-renewal and self-reformation. No, we are sinners, hopelessly trapped in our iniquity apart from the amazing grace of God's intervening, redeeming love. If we had the power to fix ourselves and the law had the power to rescue us, then Jesus would never have needed to come to earth. That's what the Bible says. But we all know that our hope will never be found in our track record of good works or our ability to fight sin. No, our hope is only found in the grace of God, who was perfect in every way, faithful and obedient in every way. Jesus Christ, here on earth, perfectly obeyed the Father so that he could give to us that perfect record of righteousness. Sin is strong, yes, and it's stronger than we think. But our Savior conquered sin, conquered death, fought off every single temptation, never succumbed once to any temptation here on earth. And then he went to the cross and said, here's my perfect record of righteousness. Let me take your sinfulness. Let me kill it. Let me be penalized for it. Let me remove the punishment for it. And let me three days later rise from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the devil, so that you can be forgiven and free. When we are brokenhearted by the damage of sin, nothing is more beautiful to us than God's redeeming love. Sin is stronger than you think. But Jesus is stronger than you think he is. And these verses teach us so much about the majesty and beauty of Christ that I pray that as we end our service and we sing to our great God, we would sing informed, praying, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart now. It's filled with sin. I still love sin. I want to hate my sin. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on you. I want to joyfully, gladly submit myself to you. Let's proclaim as we sing. Sin is way stronger than we think it is. But Jesus is way stronger than we think he is. Father, thank you so much for your word that teaches us these realities that are so precious and profound. We want to be undone by them and let your grace shatter our preconceived ideas, not only of how bad we are, We're worse off than we think. But how loved we are, how strong you are, how mighty to save you are, how willing to save you are. God, I pray even today for those that are here, those that are listening, if they do not know that resurrection power of conquering sin, conquering death, conquering the grave, if they don't know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today would be the day they would bow the knee, that they would fight against their own autonomy their love for themselves. And they would bow the knee to you, gladly, joyfully submitting to you, the King of Kings. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with us as we worship together.